We'll go ahead and start with prayer. Dave, since you're unmuted, why don't you open us in prayer tonight? Okay. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time when we can uh, get together. Even though we're not in person, we thank you for uh, this ability to do this. We thank you for Dr. Snowberger and his willingness to teach us. Give us uh, attentive ears and open hearts that we may absorb uh, your word and your wisdom. We ask this in your name. Amen. Doctrine of the Church. We'll finish up tonight the Doctrine of the Universal Church. Um, and uh, last week we were spend some time talking about the distinctions of the church, universal church from Israel. Tonight we'll also deal with the differences between that and the kingdom. Uh, but uh, we spent some time talking about uh, uh, the differences between the church and Israel. Um, we suggested that Israel was, and, and the church are both peoples of God, but they're, but they're peoples of a different character and different quality. Um, the people of God that was Israel uh, is a civil people of God. It's a civil organization. Uh, and it's a mixed group. Some of them are believers and some of them are not. In fact, the majority are not. But the church is a different sort of community. They're both peoples of God. They're both elect groups. And yet the election is different. One is a civil election, and the church's is a redemptive election. So everyone who is a participant in the life of the church is a believer. He's regenerate. And for that reason, we have to uh, uh, see differences between the two. So we we found that the universal church is distinct in character uh, from the nation of Israel, also in terms of their entry in order to get into the Israelite community, uh, you simply had to be born a Jew. Uh, and uh, if you're a boy, you would have been circumcised. But uh, that really has nothing to do with the baptism uh, whereby we uh, join uh, the universal church. So the spirit baptism, whereby we are all baptized into the one body, is something you knew, as we're going to see tonight. We then talked about the uh, the fact that the church was distinct in time, from Israel. Uh, we suggested that the first reference to the church in the New Testament as church was in Matthew 16 and 18, uh, where we find this discovery that I will, Jesus says, I will build my church upon Peter and his confession and the rest of the apostles. And uh, in Matthew 16, the establishment of the church is still future. So the church has still not been established, has not been founded yet. Um, and then we also talked about the fact that uh, Acts 1, uh, is it still is future. You will be baptized. You will receive power. Um, and then the commission kicks in, in Acts chapter 1. So we, we understand the beginning of the church to be at Pentecost. And then uh, we also established that the uh, church really can't exist, quad church, um, until the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is seen in the uh, in the, uh, the, the ordinances, uh, both baptism and Lord's table are there to reflect the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so without them, you cannot have church. And then uh, Christ had to ascend on high in order to take his rightful place as the head of the church and to distribute gifts to men. And we looked at passages in Ephesians uh, that demonstrate that. And so, uh, we find that it's, it, that it, it was future to the earthly ministry of Christ and, in fact, depends on the completed work of Christ to be founded. And then uh, we find that uh, in letter C here uh, that uh, the uh, ministry of Paul, Paul is the revealer. He's the one who's the revealer of the mystery of the church. And so it is during, uh, the, the, during the, the life of Paul and the early apostles that the uh, that the great bulk of information that we have about the church is revealed to us. Uh, prior to that time, it had been a mystery that is previously unrevealed, now revealed. And again, we said last week that perhaps there are some oblique references uh, to a, a time in which the Gentiles will be included. Uh, but uh, that's, that's, it's hard to say that's a reference to the church, although there perhaps is a, a hint 
that there will be something else, something different uh, than than Israel in the Old Testament. And then we find that the church concludes at the rapture when it is swept out of the way. Okay, This brings us to where we uh, left off last time, top of page 8. The fact that the church is distinct from Israel in terms of origin, purpose, and destiny. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it just makes sense. Uh, one is a civil uh, people of God. One is a redemptive people of God. They begin at different times. Uh, they have different purposes within the order that God has designed. And they have different ends. And we can see the details here. Israel began as an ethnic group with the call of Abraham. And as a political entity with the giving of the law, that's the constitution of the nation of Israel that's given on Mount Sinai. Uh, one joined the covenant community by natural birth, by circumcision, without respect to spiritual condition, and you lived in a land. Geographical boundaries that, that uh, determined uh, where the Israelites lived. But the church began on the day of Pentecost. As a spiritual body, not a, not a civil or a, or an ethnic body, but a spiritual body without any ethnic or political distinctions. At least there's not supposed to be any. Uh, one joins the church by experiencing new birth as illustrated in water baptism. And it knows, knows no geographic boundaries. It's a universal element that goes worldwide. The purposes for each is distinct as well. The influence that Israel has on the world is national and corporate. And her purposes were received not only in her cultic structures, but also her political structures. And in fact, Israel has no missionary mandate. Okay, they're, 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 They have a political mandate. They don't have a missionary mandate. There's no command anywhere for the Israelites to go and evangelize the nations. It's just not a part of, of the responsibility that Israel had. But the church is different. Church's individual uh, influence on the world is not national, but individual or, you know, groups of local churches. The purposes of the church are realized through uh, her missionary endeavors. It, it's the Great Commission. That's what they do. And yet the church has no political mandate. It is not designed to uh, be a partner or a participant in the political maneuverings of the world. Now, that's not to say that this, the church or the, the preacher cannot speak to issues that relate to politics. So long as the Bible speaks of something, uh, you know, it's part of the whole counsel of God and is, and is the legitimate topic of preaching, teaching. At the same time, it's not the church's responsibility to engage in political maneuvering. That's not their place. Uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. Okay. And how do you do that? Well, you go to church to render to God the things that are God. You, you know, do all sorts of things to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Pay your taxes right now. You're probably in the thick of that, right? All your W-2s are coming in the mail. So, you know, you render to Caesar financially, but uh, then you also uh, participate in the, in the, uh, all the civic structures. You, you, you're a good neighbor, you're a good worker, you're a good mom and dad, right? Uh, in, in order to be, uh, render to Caesar the things, uh, that are Caesar's. So they're very, very different, uh, uh, animals here, Israel and the church. And then they have different destinies as well. Uh, when we come to the eschaton, particularly to the millennial kingdom, Israel takes her place at the head of the nations, and she serves the nations as a kingdom of priests for the nations. Okay, And so, uh, as I understand it, uh, the, the Israelites will represent those nations that stream to her light uh, during the millennial period, uh, and they will serve the nations. Uh, if I, if I can, if I can use this, this analogy as the priestly caste, uh, within the, the civil structure of the millennial kingdom. Uh, the, the Israelites are the priestly caste. What's the church? Well, the church is the bride of Christ who's reigning with him for a thousand years. And so the church functions in the millennium, if I can, as part of the ruling caste. 
Okay. So they're very different. Okay. They each have their function. I, I, you don't want to say that one is better than the other, uh, or more important than the other. They're both, they both serve their functions, but they're not the same thing. And that's the critical point that we want to establish here. The church is not Israel. Okay. And any questions that you might have, why feel free to, uh, unmute yourself and, uh, and, and bull into the conversation here. So I've got, uh, I've got 10 of you where I can see you, but if there's more, if more people show up, uh, I might not see everybody. So just holler out if you have a question. Uh, you don't have to wait for me to, to ask for them. Number five then, bottom of page eight for those who are just joining, uh, the church and the is Israel, Israel are distinct. Um, uh, as, as, as we go into the, into the church age, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10 32, we have this statement. Give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to Greeks. Give no offense to the church of God. Okay. Which establishes here that Jews are not the church of God. Okay. There's three groups under review here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, of course, is dealing with our relationships, uh, with different ethnic groups, uh, largely in an evangelistic context, right? When I, when I'm, um, when I'm among Jews, I act as a Jew in order that I might win Jews, right? Chapter 9. When I'm among Gentiles, I act like a Gentile in order that I might win Gentiles, okay? So that there aren't needless, uh, uh barriers to the sharing of the gospel. And so the conclusion, after whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do to all to the glory of God, here, here's where it, here, here's the conclusion, verse 32. So don't offend Jews by what you eat or drink. Don't offend Greeks by what you eat or drink. Don't offend the church of God by what you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God and, and cultivate that sensitivity uh, to uh, those around you, okay? And so uh, w- there's three groups here that are to be uh, the object of our concern. One is Jews, one is Greeks, one's the church of God, which, ex- con- which excludes the possibility that the church and the Jewish nation are the same thing. I say here, no Jew has ever been excluded from Israel. That designation Israel always carries with it racial ethnic overtones, uh, but Paul makes it clear that not all Jews belong to the church of God. There are Jews outside the church of God. They, they don't belong. Okay. In fact, you know, when Peter is preaching here, the very the day of Pentecost in the aftermath here in Acts chapter three, Peter saws this, sees this and replies to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Okay, so he's trying to, he, he, there, there's, there's people, this, this fledgling group that is the church, that is, that is functioning as church. And the Israelites, there are leaders of the Jews outside saying, we've got a problem here. Things are not going the way we expect. And so Peter addresses them. Hey, you men of Israel, this church here is a legitimate thing. And you need to get on board. So the men of Israel and the church are separate organisms here in Acts chapter 3. Uh, Galatians 6, I think, uh, 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 carries out this, this same idea here. The New Testament distinguishing Jews and Gentiles, this time inside the church. Um, Galatians 6, of course, is, is detailing... The fact that justification is by faith alone. And one of the critical concerns in the book of Galatians, as is in much of the New Testament, is this concern that we don't have to uh, toe the line with respect to the Mosaic law in order to be rightly related to God in the church. Specifically, there was a big conference, right, at uh, in in. Acts chapter 15 at Jerusalem to determine what, whether or not, uh, people have to be circumcised 
to be legitimate members of the church and the whole church, you know, gathers from all corners of, well, not, not all corners of the globe at this point, but they're scattered out pretty well. And they all come to Jerusalem to, to hash out this question. And their conclusion is reflected there in, in Acts 15, but also in Galatians 6. It really details this out. And the conclusion of the matter is this. Circumcision is nothing, neither is uncircumcision. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, it doesn't whether, matter whether you're circumcised or not. Or not. Uh, what matters is, uh, what matters. is the new creation. Okay. And, and then here's, here's where we, we come to the uh, point where I'm trying to make here. And those who walk by this rule, um, you know, no, no, circ- no, no circumcision. I'm not circumcised. I don't care about circumcision. So those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you. And also upon the Israel of God, the people who get circumcised. Grace and peace upon them. Grace and peace upon you. Gentiles, Jews, grace and peace upon both groups within one body. Okay. And so they're, so Jews retain their ethnic identity, uh, but they, but they are not the same thing as the church. Within the church are Jews and Gentiles, all treated as one, but they retain their ethnic identities. So Israel and the church cannot be the same thing. And I think we find an explanation of this in Romans chapter 11. Why is it that uh, God arranged it this way? Well, Romans 11 tells us, uh, and Romans 11 makes no sense unless Israel and the church are just are separate groups. Paul argues in this great chapter here. Dr. Snowberger, real yes. quick. Uh-huh. Um, Kim's got a friend who's, she's a Messianic Jew, I guess. Yeah. So would they still be considered Israel of God? I mean, or are they trying to live by works, maybe? Well, yeah, okay. It, it, it is, I think it's appropriate to speak of someone who is a completed Jew. Uh, that is someone who has an ethnic Jewish heritage who has embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Um, you don't have to give up your ethnic heritage as a Jew in order to be part of the church any more than I have to give up, you know, my, my Swiss heritage in order to be part of the church. So I can gladly say I'm, you know, I, I'm Swiss German and she can say I'm a Jew. And, and because she's one of those rare Jews that actually embraces Jesus Christ, you can speak of them as a, you know, a completed Jew, someone who, uh, you know, overcame the odds as it were and embraced the Messiah. We're, we're, were caused by the Holy Spirit to see the light. The concern with some of these Messianic Jewish groups, um, Hebrew Roots Movement, there's there's a, there's a number of them, um, is that some of these groups persist in the works of the law as a matter of necessity, and that's where the problem comes in. You know, it it's not a problem for someone of a Jewish heritage to you know, celebrate Passover or, or Yom Kippur or, or, or whatever the case may be, holidays, feasts and such. There's nothing, there's nothing inappropriate about that if that's part of your Jewish heritage. Um, however, if you, if at the, the moment you say, and you need to too, or else you're not doing everything you need to do as a believer, that's where you, that's, that's where they, they cross a line. And because, participation in those things. I think, you know, if, if we were to ask Paul about that, he would say, Yom Kippur, if you want, want to celebrate Yom Kippur, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. Peace be upon you. Peace be upon you who don't. Okay. And if you can't say that, peace be upon you if you don't, uh, then I think that's, that's where the line gets crossed in terms of, of Messianic Judaism and uh, Hebrew roots kinds of situations. I don't know if that helps. Does that make sense? You're, you're, you're well, that was a good explanation. Okay, good. Thanks. And so Romans 11 then, picking up where we were here, makes no sense unless Israel and the, and the church 
are separate groups. And if I can summarize the argument of, of, of Romans 11 is that Israel, despite all of her benefits, all of her advantages, had not achieved what they had sought, except a very small remnant. You know, that's the point, right? Very few Jews actually convert and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And for this reason, we find that God sets them apart, you know, sets them aside, as it were, and turns to the Gentiles, okay? And so the church age is largely uh, the uh, the explosion of the Gentile church, okay? Now, you don't have to be a Gentile to be part of the church, and yet most people who belong to the church are Gentiles, okay? And why is that? Well, this is the time of the Gentiles, and, and this is designed by God, Paul says, in order that the Israelites might become jealous, okay? And by them becoming jealous, ultimately this will cause them in the end day to turn upon, turn to Christ. And God, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, this new covenant, God will, you know, create in them, you know, a, a heart to know and understand. And they will stream from the corners of the globe back to their homeland. And they will look upon him in whom they have pierced and weep because of the terrible mistake they've made for the last 2000 years in rejecting their Messiah. Okay. And in mass, all Israel will be saved. And this is, this is the grand plan of God, which can, you know, at, at which point Paul says what? Oh, the depths of the wisdom and, and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his ways and how, how, how beyond, beyond our understanding God is in order to work things out this way. Okay. And so we recognize that because of the rejection temporarily of the Jews, this is the opportunity. This is an advantage that we have. We have our chance to be part of this, of, the, of what God is doing here. And then all Israel will be saved. And so if Israel and the church are the same thing, then Romans 11 really makes no sense at all. Okay. Any, any questions here on the distinctions of the church in Israel? This can be something of a little bit of an academic uh, pursuit here, uh, but there's a there's a huge portion of believers who think that Israel and the church are the same thing, and uh, it's important. You say, well, does it does it really matter? I mean, can I be a Christian and and be wrong on this? Yeah, you can be a Christian, but the fact is, remember we said earlier. Israel has one mission. The church has another mission. If we conflate the two, what happens? Well, the mission of the church and the mission of Israel, which are intended to be distinct, now become conflated. And so the mission of the church becomes occluded. Uh, we're, we're actually doing things that's really not our business. Okay, There, there are things that Israel was doing that the church has no business doing. Same thing is true in this next category here, the kingdom. Uh, oftentimes you'll hear that the church is the kingdom. You know, we're doing kingdom work right, by going out and evangelizing and so on and so forth. Uh, but the fact is the church and the kingdom are separate. Okay. Uh, the kingdom is a grand time in which Christ rules over the nations and, uh, and the, the circumstances are going to be fantastic. But the mission of those living in the kingdom is going to be different than those living in the church, right? Okay, so what, what are we going to be doing in the kingdom? Well, we're it, 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 not evangelism. There's no need for it, right? You know, in fact, isn't that the point of, of Jeremiah 31? We, we, if you turn to your brother and say, you need to know the Lord, you'll find out that everyone around you knows him already. everybody's a believer. So the mission of the folks living in the kingdom is not evangelism. It's to build the kingdom, okay, in all of its contours, okay? Uh, Yes. I'm sorry. I I was trying to get in there. Um, When you asked 
for questions. I had a question on on what do covenant theologians? What's a common answer to their to their not following uh, the Old Testament Mosaic law and such things as animal sacrifices and and uh, you know and and dress and you know and all the things that that the Pentateuch gives the nation of Israel to do pass that off how do they explain that if they think that they're still part of Israel right well I don't I don't know if there's a single answer but one of the biggest pieces is to break the law apart into three sections oh okay so you've got this you've got the ceremonial portions we don't do that anymore because Jesus has come okay so the sacrifices and all that then there's there are there are civil aspects which have to do that if I can say that they're culture bound. Okay. And so, you know, for instance, there's rules about putting fences around your roof. Well, that's culture bound. That is geographically unique. We don't have to put fences on our roof because we're not walking around on our roofs. Okay. So that is, that is, that is restricted to that civil community that lives there in Palestine. And then there's the moral portions. Okay. So the moral portions are binding on every age for the, for for the reform. So they break the law part into three sections. Two parts are set aside for us. One continues. And so that's how they get away from doing all of those rules, all of those functions okay. that we find in the old Testament. Okay. Thank you. There, there, I mean, it, that's a little bit of a simplistic answer. They're, they're, there could be more to that answer than that, but that's probably the biggest piece. Okay, so what is the difference between the church and the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom begins in the Old Testament, right? Uh, I mean, the, the hints of it begin with Moses, right? There's, there's, uh, he's the leader of the, the theocracy, and we find that he goes up Mount Sinai and gets instructions, including instructions on how a king is going to be uh, appointed here among the peoples. And so we find as we work our way through the Old Testament uh, that uh, first we get to judges. What's the problem? There is no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so the next book, right? Well, there's Ruth in there, but first, first Samuel. What's this? Well, they have a king, but they have a rotten king. Saul was a terrible choice as a king. He was a king like the nations. That's what they shouldn't have done. So then we move to what? Second Samuel. And so what do we find there? Second Samuel is, is, is a king who is a man after God's own heart. And so this is, this is an improvement upon Saul, but still David isn't everything he needs to be, right? He's, he's got his feet of clay. Um, and, uh, some real problems along the way. And so the, so the, the anticipation is that the, we need not only to have a king and not only to have a good king, but we have to have a divine king. And so you, you work your way through the Old Testament and you recognize that there's a kingdom and, and there's a longing here for the right king. Um, and so there's a kingdom that begins in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. There's a kingdom that's offered. Jesus says, I'm king. I'm right in your midst. If you embrace me, the kingdom will begin immediately. And yet they reject him. And so what's the conclusion? The kingdom is going to be taken away from this generation and given to another generation that does the fruits of it. Okay. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a breach here in the life of the kingdom. The king has been rejected. He goes, as Luke 19 says, to a far country to receive his kingdom and then to return. And so we're living in this window here before the king begins ruling in Jerusalem. Okay. And so uh, we're not in the kingdom. There is a broad sense in which we could say we're doing kingdom work in that we're generating a population for a kingdom yet to come, but it's, we're really not building the kingdom at this point. The kingdom has been suspended 
and we're living in an in, in an in an intermediate period in which there is no rule of Christ in terms of of a Davidic rule. God is still the ruler of of the universe, but Christ is not sitting on the throne as the ruler of this world. And so the kingdom and the church are not the same thing. The kingdom occurs after the church age. And we, we, I have a series of passages here that anticipate some, a kingdom that is yet future. Uh, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. There's a kingdom of God coming and you can inherit it. Uh, but you're not in it now. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, Paul says, and will bring me safely to the kingdom. Implying that he's not there now. Uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. As long as you add to your faith, virtue and knowledge and temperance and so on and so forth. You do these things. You will never stumble. And in this way, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So... The anticipation is after a lifetime of perseverance and, and, and progress towards Christ likeness, we move on, we die, and an entry will be made for us into the kingdom. So we're not in the kingdom now. Kingdom is something that we anticipate after we die. Okay. And there's a number of passages there that you can look at that speak to the fact that the kingdom is, is yet to come. So we pray. Along as, along with, uh, uh, our Lord Christ, your kingdom come because it isn't yet. Okay. And so there's the anticipation that the kingdom is yet to come. We're not in it now. Same time, we do have a relationship with the kingdom. We are, uh, we find in Colossians 1 13, been, we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. The reason I put the Ephesians 2 6 there is because I think if, you're, you're familiar with the fact that Colossians and Ephesians are uh, parallel books. They can, they're probably written about the same time. They cover a large, largely the same block of material. Um, and uh, you can actually do a harmony. Uh, uh, you know, we talk about a harmony of the Gospels where we sort of compare them with each other. You can do the same thing with Ephesians and Colossians because they say much the same thing. Ephesians 2, however, when it, when it has this, in, instead of saying, he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The book of Ephesians says he seated us in heavenly places. Okay, so those are the parallel phrases here. And we should understand both of those phrases the same way. Um, when, you know, when, when we became believers, we didn't actually enter heaven's portals immediately, right? However, we were guaranteed a place there. And so it says here that we were seated in the heavenlies. We were given a spot. Okay. Uh, you know, John, you know, John 14, where we've got our place. It's not a mansion, but the, you know, we, but God's building us. Jesus is building us a place and we're going to have a place, uh, in that day. Um, and the same thing, I think it should be how we should understand Colossians 1 3. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. That is, he guaranteed us a spot. He gave us a place. Uh, and so we have a reservation uh, to, to enter into the kingdom, just as we have the reservation to enter into the heavenlies in Ephesians 2. Okay, And so we anticipate that at the end of the church age, the kingdom will begin and we'll be participants in it. But we're not yet. We're not yet. So again, here I say the church will be co-regent with Christ during the millennium, serving as part of the royal family and as administrators in the highest echelons of the millennial rule. So we find if we endure, we will reign. We will judge, First Corinthians 6 says, and who to all of us who overcome. This is the words to the last of the representative churches before we get into the... Uh, Details of eschatology here. To him who overcomes within the life of the church, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, Jesus says, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So two thrones, right? There's the throne of God over the universe. 
which Jesus shares with his father. But Jesus also has his own throne, right? The throne over the millennial kingdom. And he invites us to share that throne. Okay. And so we as church saints will be part- partners and participants in the kingdom as rulers with Jesus for a thousand years. Okay. Now we, we're going to be in the same place as Israel, but we're going to have different functions. Israel will be the kingdom of priests. We will be the rulers ruling with Christ for a thousand years. And then there will be a great mass of, of nations uh, that will be ruled at that time. I think we have something very similar when we, uh, when we see the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the close of the tribulation, there's a marriage of Jesus with his bride in heaven. And then what do they do? They migrate to earth. Okay. At the great second coming of Christ, they come to earth and there's all kinds of, uh, as you look through the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24 and 25, there's a preparation made. The virgins are to be there with their lamps trimmed and burning. These are the, as it were, the, the bridesmaids. Okay. They, they will, they will take their place. There will be the friends of the groom. Okay. Uh, uh, which, uh, which will, will attend, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the proceedings here. We're not, not all believers everywhere are the bride of Christ. There's also other participants and it's not just the people who are out in outer darkness, but there's a great host of people that are at the party that are not part of the bride of Christ. And that's, and you could say, well, maybe we're just, we're making this metaphor, uh, walk on all, all fours. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, at a, at a marriage, there's the bride and the groom, and there's a whole bunch of other people that come to watch and uh, feast and have a have a good time, and that's what the kingdom's going to be like. Okay, Doctor Snowberger, what does it mean? Where I'm reading here, Israel will have a place of priority too, but there is an, apparently not a regal role. Right. Like, how does that? It just all seems so surreal. Like, yeah. Like they were his chosen people, and mm-hmm. yet, you know, they they didn't want him. And then I think down through the years, like with the Holocaust and, you know, all those souls that were lost, did they die without Christ? And then that little remnant that does make it, it seems like they're not going to be that important. Well, no, I, I don't you know. No, I wouldn't say that. In fact, you know, it, it, there's a there's a sense in which I would say that the story of the Bible is the story of Israel. Um, and 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 the and the grand conclusion here is that all Israel will be saved. You know, that's you mm-hmm. know Romans eleven twenty six, and so there's going to be a a large number of Israelites who will be. You know, they're, you know, gathered, they're clustered there in Israel. The nations are coming to consume them. And this is when Jesus appears and they in mass embrace him. And it's going to be a large quantity of them. Uh, and, right. <laughs> and, and their, and their role though is not to rule with Christ for a thousand years, but actually to function as a kingdom of priests. Okay. So they're going to have a, you know, the, you know, I, I, I've tried to use the, uh, the, the metaphor of the Indian caste system. And I know that mm-hmm. perhaps that's a bad idea to do because, you know, the caste system has a lot of tensions with it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I think we perhaps it gives us a sense of what's going on. There's going to be this class of people that are going to be the aristocracy, right? That they're going to be the rulers and that's going to be the church. There's going to be the priestly caste, and you know, in in India, those 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 cast, those are the two top castes. They're right next okay. to each other. <laughs> and so both have a position of great prominence. They're just different, okay. And so that's I, I wouldn't say that either one that that we have to look at and say, oh, they get a better spot than they do. I think we both have significant roles to play within the millennium and in the eternal state, just different roles. And I, and I don't think that that insults either group. I think both okay. have their place of priority. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
Other questions about the distinctions of the church and the kingdom? Okay, then. So participation in the, in the universal church. I want to go through this. I don't know if any of you have, uh, have a background in landmarkism, landmark Baptist, uh, uh principles. There, and I, I, I want to address this. It used to be a bigger issue than it is now, I think. At least, uh, it, it, it still is an issue, I think, but mostly in the geographic south. Um, it's not so much an issue up in the north, uh, anymore. Uh, there used to be something of a, of a contingent that was connected with Maranatha Baptist Bible College, but that's, that seems to have dissipated. I don't really think that that's uh, much of an issue any longer. Uh, but there is this group, Landmark Baptists, who denied that there was a universal church. And their, their understanding is that every reference in the New Testament is to a local church. And there's a number of other strange ideas that went with it that, uh, you know, if, if you want to belong to the church, you have to make sure your church has the proper pedigree. It has to have been planted by someone who was sent by someone who was sent by a church that was sent by a church that was sent by the original church that was established by the apostles. Okay. Uh, and so there's this, this, this idea, this, this trail of blood, uh, that, that if you want to belong to the church, this is the only kind of church. And there were some, some interesting little twists and turns. And, uh, so there was no universal church, just a succession of local churches. Um, part of the reason for this was to avoid uh, the idea that the Roman Catholic Church was the church. We have an alternate, alternative, uh, you know, we have an alternative group. Um, but I'm not sure that that's really something that's necessary to do in order to d- detach yourself, uh, from Romanism. The fact is there are a number of, of passages in the New Testament, not a huge number, but a number that speak of the whole community of New Testament believers geographically unbounded. That's why I said we sometimes call it the invisible church, not because we can't be seen, but because we're never seen together in the same place, because we're scattered all over the globe. And not only are we scattered all over the globe, but we're, but some of us have gone on to heaven. So uh, we sing about that. Church is one foundation. We have mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. I know it's a sort of a strange line there. Uh, but there's this, this, this idea here that the church includes not only all believers who are alive today, but all New Testament believers who have gone to their eternal rest. Okay. And we're all part of this group and we have communion with this whole, this whole body. And we find uh, several passages that really cannot be, um, local, uh, local churches. And so there is a, universal church and so we have to establish that first okay so there's several uses of ecclesia here that cannot possibly refer to a local church Ephesians 3 and hebrews 12 speak of a church that extends to heaven okay uh so so the idea that the church is a, just a collection of local churches is 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 beat up here by this idea that there's a church that extends into heaven uh, Christ is the head of the church. Well, okay. What's the church if it's a local church? Is it your church or is it my church or what church is it? Well, the fact is Christ is the head of the whole church, the universal church, all the churches collectively, all the local churches collectively, which is the local church, which is the universal church. Fact is, uh, the local church, despite our best efforts, will always include some unbelievers. Uh, we do our best to guard the door of the church so that unbelievers don't get in, but sometimes it happens, right? Uh, people are, people are sneaky. People are, de- are deceivers and sometimes people are self-deceived. But the universal church includes no unbelievers. The universal church is those who have been baptized by the spirit into this one body, the body of believers, which is the church. And so, um, 
you don't become a member of a local church to assure your place in heaven. You become a member of the universal church, as it were, uh, by spirit baptism. Okay. And the fact is that uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 speaks of that we were all baptized into one body. Well, right on the face of things, that tells us that it's, you know, Paul was writing. He was apparently baptized by church outside of Damascus there, so probably the Antioch church. And he's writing to a people in Corinth and says, we're all baptized into the same body. Obviously, he's not talking about the local church at this point. He's talking about this one overarching group here. Okay. And I say that there, there's really some, some tensions, some additional tensions. Again, this, this idea of landmarkism, if you're not familiar with it, probably it's going to go right over the top of your head. But if you, if you run into this sometime, and maybe come, you know, come back to these, to these notes here and, and pick up here some of this, uh, this, uh, uh, these little details along the way. But the fact is, there is a universal church. So the first position is that you, you can't enter into the universal church. And I'm saying, yeah, you can. So how do you get in? Well, the, the, the broad church, particularly in the reformed community, speaks of the church as the collection of all the regenerate of all time, including Adam. You know, Adam was the first member of the church. He was the first believer, the first regenerate person, and his wife, Eve. And so the church is the collection of all regenerate people. Uh, But as we've said along the way, there are Israelites who are not part of the church. Okay, so Old Testament Israel is not part of the church. There is a group of people who were converted, who were regenerated in the Old Testament, who were not church. So we have to have some sort of other unifying uh, uh, unifying idea that connects those who belong to the church. And our conclusion here is that it must be spirit baptism. Why do I say that? Well, it's, it's not just regeneration that makes you a part of the church universal, but the fact that you have been baptized into this multi-ethnic body. So coming back here, the first Corinthians 12, which we just referenced by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit because this body is not one member, but many. Of course, it's in the context here of explaining the contrast between Israel and the church. We're not Israel. Instead, irrespective of our ethnic heritage, We've all been brought into this one body, which is the church. And it says here, by being baptized in the spirit, which is an event that begins at uh, Pentecost, right? Okay, So uh, the baptism, you know, remember back in the beginning of the uh, Gospels when John the Baptist was, was baptizing with water and uh Jesus comes along. He doesn't recognize immediately who it is, but uh, baptizes him. But uh, remember the statement here is, I, you know, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And what's Jesus' response? Okay, baptize me with water. But there is a day coming when you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, so there's a spirit baptism that is ahead of us. Okay. That will unite this new body, but it hasn't happened yet. This is something that will occur on the day of Pentecost, and so that's where the where the church begins uh, when all of these individuals were spirit baptized, which is illustrated then by water baptism. And so, what what is water baptism a symbol of? Well, I mean, the simple answer is the the, you know, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there's actually even a, a more simple answer. It's a picture of spirit baptism. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's symbolic of the fact that we've been spiritually baptized into this one, this one global body. And it's illustrated by a water baptism into a local expression of that body. Okay. And so the, uh, so the, so the symbolism of baptism is very important here. Okay. So in order to be baptized into Christ, 
you know, Christ actually has to have died, been buried, and risen again. And so you're baptized into Christ. You clothe yourself with Christ because he is the one who is the head of the body. And uh, he does this, of course, by dying on the cross, breaking down this barrier of separation and making it possible for this one new man to emerge uh, and to unite, irrespective of ethnic distinctions, into this one body. So we're reconciled uh, by, by God through Christ on the cross uh, by, this, by this act of Holy Spirit baptism. Okay. So that's how, that's how one belongs to the church. And so hopefully we, we, there's more to be said about the, the church universal. Um, but the material that we find in the Old Testament, in the New Testament only gives us a, a small percentage of what we might know. Most of the New Testament discussion about the church has to do with the local church. Okay. How it's organized how we uh, participate in the life of it, what are its rights, who are, what are its officers, what are its responsibilities. And so that's going to be the lion's share of our course. I didn't want to spend at least these, these first two weeks talking about the universal church. Uh, but from this point forward, we're going to be talking about the local, the local church. Okay. Um, and I want to make sure that uh, uh, we're, we're ready for that. And uh, I, I, we're, we're, we're to the end of our time here, uh, almost, uh, but, uh, we want, we want to recognize that we live within a, within a history. Now it's, uh, it's, what does Russell Kirk say about conservatives? We understand we weren't born yesterday, right? Okay. But I think sometimes we think that, uh, that the church that we go to, whether it's community church, community, Community Bible Church or Inner City Baptist Church. This is the way church has always been done, and this is just the way we do it. But the fact is, there is quite a tapestry of approaches to the life of the church and to the the doing of church. And I think we do well to sort of get our noses out of the church that we go to and recognize that the scriptures speak rather broadly uh, to the life of the local church. And we want to know, what does the Bible say? Okay. And what have we added to it? Not, not, and not necessarily in a bad sense. You know, we, we add things uh, because, you know, the Bible gives us a skeleton. But the things that are added, the circumstances, as they're sometimes called, of worship and, and, and participation in the life of the church have contours uh, that sometimes have a life of their own. And we imagine that, that what we're doing in church is what God expects us to be, be doing. And sometimes we need to go back and just explore. What is it that the Bible says, these are the things you have to do, and this is how you have to do them. And uh, so that, that'll be the goal of the uh, rest of the course here. So next week we'll start then on the uh, local church, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, make some good progress then.